It means something to be a Christian. To bear the name of Christ. And I hope that meant something to you today. Honestly, I don't even know why I need to preach today because you heard the truth from the lips of Colin and Ashley. Uh, But today, uh, we're going to look together at the book of Galatians. And so I'm going to ask if you would turn in your Bibles to chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. And as you do so, I'd like to pray with you. Lord, thank you for what we have heard today. It's an encouragement. It gives us confidence and reminds us that we are disciples of yours or followers. And we need to learn from you. So God, may this be instructive to us today. May we learn what it means to be a disciple. If we're not there, oh God, may you expose to us what is our relationship to Jesus Christ. What, is, what defenses have we put up that have kept us from surrendering to Him, from believing upon Him? So God, speak to us today. Do what only You can do, a supernatural work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 19. Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You can be seated. Does anybody have the clicker? clicker? Where'd Janet go? We'll get it down. Um, You know, since moving to Minnesota, you could say that we as a family have taken a liking to lake culture. And by that I mean we've come to appreciate the beauty and the uh, uh, the activity that surrounds uh, what is really, right, a defining feature 
of the state, right? It is the land of lakes. But nowadays, it's not really an outing or a vacation so much for people, but people build their homes on the lake, right? They make their living on the lake. And on more than one occasion, we have experienced this pastime, I guess you could call it, of when you go around the lake and you look at everyone's lake house. You like doing that? You go around like seeing what everyone's house looks like and, oh, so-and-so lives here and, and, you know, this house was just built or, oh, this is the oldest house on the lake, right? There's a story and, you know, a lot of people know everything about these houses. Now, recently we heard the story of a house that is set to be torn down, okay? Now, the surprising thing is that there's nothing wrong with it, okay? It's not dilapidated. It's not falling apart or in need of serious renovation. It's a beautiful house. It's a nice property. And you say, well, why are they tearing it down then? Well, the word on the lake, okay? And by the way, word travels fast on the lake. So be careful what you say when you're on the lake. But the word on the lake is that the homeowner's cousin just built a $650,000 home. And so... And since the two of these guys have always been in such a competition, he now has to one-up his relative with a bigger, better house. Are you surprised? No. No. (laughs) The things that we do when we compare ourselves with each other. Do you play the comparison game? Of course you do. How many moms here compare themselves with other moms? You compare your kids with their kids, your family with their family. How many men compare themselves with the income of other men or their wife with someone else's wife? How many pastors compare their lives with other pastors? Or churches and their ministries with other churches and what they're doing? You know, depending on who you're looking at, you're either going to feel superior or inferior, right? Oh, we're so much better, right? Because we have this, we got this going for us. But then you look over here and you go, well, well, this person is so gifted at that, and why am I not that way? Well, why do they have this? You know, what's my problem? Now, those are all things we've said. And I'll tell you something, it all stems from the same root. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you do about this natural inclination to compare yourself with other people? Because it's always going to go in one of two directions. It's either going to puff you up and make you feel superior, or else make you cause you to despair and begin to envy someone. What do you do about that? Well, we've been looking together at this fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. And Paul has just reminded these young Galatian believers, that there's only two ways to live. Remember this? And one way is to live according to the flesh. Okay, that's the sinful part of us. Okay? This is, by the way, this is how we all lived at one point. We all lived according to our sin nature. You can put it this way. Sin had a chokehold on your life. And try as you might to break free. You could never do it in your own strength. As Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's Romans 7, verse 18. 
So Paul then asks, well, who then? Who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, he's saying, I'm not able to do it. I can't keep God's law as it's required, which is this, perfectly all the time. I need someone else. I need someone stronger than my sin nature. So God did this. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not. You'll never meet God's righteous requirement. But guess who did? His Son. You know, the Bible never says it's not a matter of how good you do or how much bad you do. The Bible declares that even your good, even your, what you think is good, is still stained with impure motives. Because the Bible says none. None is righteous. Not one. Romans 3.10. But Jesus, fulfilling the righteous requirement, then offered His perfect life as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. On the cross. Jesus died an ugly, shameful death. Why? Because that's how ugly and shameful sin is. But it was a perfect offering. And I know that because God raised Him from the dead. In other words, He accepted it. It satisfied God's just demand. You say, well, how do you earn such a gift? You can't earn it. That's the point. God knew this, and even though we were His enemies, He paid the price in full. That's why we sing songs like Amazing Grace. The only response the Bible calls us to is to believe Him for it. Hey, trust Him for what He's done. And at the moment you do that, He sets you free from sin. In other words, you can say for the first time ever, I'm truly free. And what what happens is the Spirit of God performs this mighty work in us. So it's not just something you know, oh, that Jesus died for me, but something you experience. I now have a new desire to love God and to love other people. And not only that, but the ability to carry that out. So last week we then asked ourselves, well, how do you know which track of life you are on? Because, well, Paul said this. He said, the results of the flesh are obvious. Don't overlook them. They're evident. Make no mistake. These things are plain to see, right? Sexual immorality or strife, or jealousy, idolatry, fits of anger. Are these things a pattern in your life? Then don't ignore the warning of verse 21, right? I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you think, well, maybe, well, eventually God will welcome everyone in, right? No. Listen, why would God warn us now if after death all your sin is purged away anyway. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Instead, it says this, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Him. But if the track of your life is in the Spirit, okay, the results will be radically different. Paul put it this way, The fruit of the Spirit. If He's in your life, verse 22, it'll be this, right? You will have love. Okay, Love that's not conditional. Okay, You'll have freedom to love without expecting a return. You don't need anything back. You know why? Because God's perfect love is filling you up. His love overflows in you. You don't need to get anything back from anybody. 
You'll have joy. You know, joy is a deep-seated content in all of life. Happiness may come and go, but joy is there because it's rooted in an unchanging God. Look at this, you'll have peace. Listen, this is a peace that the world knows nothing of because God is taking care of your greatest need and He's in control of everything else. You'll have patience or long-suffering. Meaning this, you can courageously endure even when others inflict you with pain. You remember that Jesus endured without retaliation at the hands of sinful men. You'll have kindness. You know, kindness isn't just good intentions, but practical help. To the point that even you're vulnerable for the welfare of others. You'll have goodness, which is integrity. You'll you'll be the same person in all situations. And look at this, you'll have faithfulness. That means you'll be a dependable and reliable person, not a fair-weathered friend. You'll have gentleness. Or, your Bible may have meekness. In other words, you'll have a soothing influence on the people around you. And then Paul adds, you'll have self-control. You won't be carried away by impulsive desires. So if all of these together are the fruit of the Spirit, then then all of them will be growing together. So Paul's not just saying you need behavior modification. He's saying this is going to be, it's meant to be a change of nature. Because I'll tell you what, your personality may give an aura of gentleness. Like by nature, you just might be a gentle person. But if that's not coupled with faithfulness, with peace, with joy, then at the end of the day, that's just your temperament. That's not the Holy Spirit. But if He has indeed changed you, then the fruit in all these qualities will be evident in your life. Now, it may take time, right? Because fruit grows gradually. But it will come. As Jesus said in Matthew 7:18, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Not possible. But you're going to grow something. Now, let me ask you this. Why is it that God wants to grow fruit in our life in the first place? Why did God determine you to bear fruit? Is it for us to then put this fruit on display so we are admired? Fruit is meant to be eaten, isn't it? And there's a world that's hungry for this kind of love, joy, and other graces of the Spirit. So as we're looking at this text before us today, I want you to bear this in mind. Okay, there on the screen. Gospel character, which is the fruit of the Spirit in your life is produced in you in order to transform how we look at and relate to others. You got it? That's why God does this in you. So if the desired outcome is this, feed others, bear fruit that feeds, then you can't do that if the conditions of the atmosphere are stifling with comparison. This is essentially what Paul says in verse 26, right? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, the main verb here is this. Do not become conceited. Conceit means this, by the way. 
It means vain glory or empty of honor. Or if I could put it this way, it is a perceived absence of honor or glory that I think I should have and that I deserve. And now if I feel or if I think that I'm lacking in honor, okay, that there's an honor hole in my life, it's going to lead me to seek to prove my worth to myself and to others. And that in turn is going to fix my mind on comparing myself with other people. You got it? And that's why Paul says and that there are two ways that you show conceit. Either by provoking one another or by envying one another, right? To provoke means to challenge, to compete with. It's like the homeowner who's competing with his relative, right? It is to look down on others from a position of superiority. Those who provoke, they do so from a sense of, oh, I'm, you know what, I'm winning at life. And periodically they're going to check in on others to make sure that they're still winning and others are still losing. Because the worse others look, the better they look. But another form of conceit is to be envying of one another. Because envying means I want others to lose so that I can win. It's just the same attitude, but from a different vantage point, right? You appear to be on the losing position. So it's comparing myself with others who seem to have more and wanting to beat and surpass them. So whether you're provoking or you are envying, and by the way, we do both depending on who we look at, right? It's all self-absorbed. It's all focused on how others make you look and feel instead of how you make others look and feel. In other words, you want to look good at the expense of someone else. That's really what it is. It's using other people to fill up some kind of false sense of worth and value. I'm going to tell you something. Fruit won't grow in these conditions. It certainly won't feed anyone. Actually, it robs. An astute writer has said, Comparison is a thug that robs your joy. Comparison is a thug that robs your joy. But it's even more than that, they said. Comparison makes you a thug that beats down somebody or your soul. Beats down somebody else or yourself. Right? Puts you in a position of superiority or inferiority. There's only one way. Listen, there is only one way to avoid a stance of either provoking or envying. Of using other people to feed your own worth. You know what that is? You need to direct your eyes off of others, which we are so prone to doing, in your vain comparisons, and get your eyes on the cross of Christ. Now here's why. Through the cross, that is, through the death of Jesus, I have all the acceptance and all the approval that I will need, ever need, for an eternity of exceeding joy. In other words, stop measuring yourself next to others. If you're going to measure anything, measure this. You were a sinner that deserved nothing except condemnation from God. And instead, you got all the honor and glory that Christ Himself deserves. 
Jesus deserves all the glory and honor. And guess what? He shares that with us. So in that case, you say, well, what more glory or honor could you possibly need? Listen, because it's only in the eyes of God that matter. And in His eyes, you're beloved. So that's why it's only the Gospel that could free us from being conceited, of provoking or of envying. And if you start with that comparison, right? God's acceptance of you, a sinner, through Christ, it'll transform the way you relate to others. If you're going to have fruit that feeds, you need to cultivate it. You need to get in the right atmosphere. And so Paul writes to us in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have done what? They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So number one, if you're going to cultivate fruit, kill the root. Kill the root. Or put it this way, keep sin on the cross. Listen, you can tell yourself over and over again, you know what, just keep doing this or don't do that or live by the rules and be the moralist. But if you do that, all you're doing is treating the symptoms, not the disease. Right? You can trim your bad behaviors, but your evil heart will still be untouched and it will still produce all those things again. Man requires heart change. And when you turn to Jesus for this kind of surgery, it involves the execution of your sin nature. Paul chose a very vivid word, didn't he, for this execution? Crucifixion. Jesus was crucified. Following Him means I'm going to deny myself. Or to picture it as Jesus did, I'm going to pick up my own cross, and then I'm actually going to nail my sin to it. Jesus didn't just die for our sin. He died that we also might put sin to death. By the way, this is why the church baptizes believers. Because that signifies that what happened to you when you were saved. You were united to Jesus in His death. And just like He was in the grave, right? We also go down into the water. But we don't stay there. We rise because Christ was also raised, never to die again. So when we undergo water baptism, and as Ashley and Colin have decided to do today, we're simply portraying publicly what Jesus has already done inwardly. So it's not for your salvation. That's only through faith. But it's to do this. It's to proclaim what He has done. So the text says, verse 24 says, Your flesh was crucified. Did you catch that? It's past tense. It means it happened when you believed. But crucified is not the same as dead, is it? You know, criminals that were sentenced to crucifixion were going to die. There's no question of that. But it was a slow, gradual, painful process. Likewise, your sinful flesh will one day expire when you are glorified. But until that day, I'm going to tell you something, your flesh is going to try to get off that cross. And you may even find yourself wanting to help it down and nurse it back to health. Secretly, somehow, we still love sin. Don't do that. Don't let the weeds of sin 
take root again and begin to sprout. Keep the flesh on the cross where it belongs. How do you do that? You do that by reminding yourself again that Jesus died to save me from this. He hung there unwilling to come down to rid me of sin's burden. So you tend the soils of your heart with the gospel. And you keep sin on the cross. And Paul then adds this, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I'll put it another way. You need to grow by the Spirit. You need to be in the atmosphere of the Spirit of God. As it says here, keep in step with Him. You see, the Spirit of God is the one who actually makes us spiritually alive. If you live by Him, okay, if you've turned to Jesus and He's made you alive, then you need to do this. Let Him also direct your steps. That phrase, keep in step with the Spirit. That was actually used in the military in regards to staying in formation. In other words, don't lag behind or don't run ahead. Stay in step with His cadence. Think of the Spirit like the commander who gives the orders. Are you willing to let Him direct your course? It's not your job to figure out where you're going or how you're going to get there. You have one task. Follow His beat. Listen to His commands. I remember when I was in marching band. I did that for four years in high school. And um, one of the uh, routines that we did, I played trombone. And uh, we had this, I don't know, uh, daredevil stunt that the trombone group did. We'd run up to the front in the beginning of our show. We'd stand um, about here. And we'd lock feet with each other, and we had, this was a big band, so there was probably 10 to 15 of us, and we'd all be in a line. And then there'd be a drum beat, and we would take our trombones, we'd all be next to each other, and we would do this routine where we'd go down, and as one of us went down, another one flew over our head. So one guy's going this way, one guy's going down this way. And we would do this for a, a period of time. And it's fast. And it's, it's risky and, you know, and there's collisions sometimes. But we practice it, right? We, we listen. The most important thing was you got to listen to the beat of that drum. Because sometimes we would go ahead and do this blindfolded. Okay? So we, we were really daredevils with that. But you had to listen to the beat. In the same way, God's saying you need to listen to me. Okay? Be focused on my, my voice. And the more you do that, you know, the less you'll need to be comparing yourself with what the others are doing. If you're all following the Spirit, you'll be in step with each other. There's not going to be those clashes of provoking or envying. In other words, there's not going to be cause for division in the ranks. Your concern will not be how well you measure up, because remember, you're already accepted by Him, but rather for the well-being of each soldier in the unit. If a brother falls behind, whether it's from weariness or exhaustion or injury, that's not your chance to move up in the ranks as if to say, well, well, his loss is my gain. But no, as Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, if you're led by the Spirit, if you're filled with Him, then restore Him in a spirit of gentleness. 
In other words, there's no room for the stifling air of conceit in the atmosphere of the Spirit. Those who are truly spiritual, they don't take advantage of others when they fall. But to the contrary, the spiritual person restores a fallen brother. That means he sets him back in his place like a bone that is out of joint. And how do they do it? They do it with care. They do it with gentleness. The point is they don't just stand around and talk about it with others. They don't scold the person for being out of joint. They just come to him and they lead him into forgiveness, confession, restored to the body. That's the attitude of someone who is in step with the Spirit. And you say, well, when our attitude is otherwise, it's because of this. Because you have forgotten that you were first a sinner who received the gentle sensitivity of Christ to restore your soul. So here, here's the bottom line. I'll ask you this. Am I living? Am I thinking? Am I feeling towards others the way Jesus has towards me? Or if I can make this into a personal prayer, Jesus, as you have been to me, now you fill in the blank. How has Jesus been to you? What's, how has He been to you? What's something? Anyone, give me something. How is Jesus? Patient. patient. Steadfast. Steadfast. Good. What else? Forgiving. Forgiving. Lifting, up. Lifting you up. Good. Faithful. Faithful. What was that? Heavenly Your Heavenly Father. Caring. Compassionate. Than this, as Jesus, as you have been to me, if he's been that to you, so I will be to others. That's where we go. That's how you stop the comparison game. You make the first comparison between what God has done with you, a sinner. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. If it is true that we have been walking and making comparisons with other people, finding our worth in how we relate to others, forgive us. Forgive us for being provoking, for competing with each other. Forgive us for spirits of envy. Lord, that doesn't display that we trust in what You have done for us. We don't need anything else. We're satisfied in You and You alone. So Jesus, let this be our declaration today. That as You have been to us, so we will be to each other. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Thank You, Father, for what You've taught us in Your Word today. In Your precious Son's name, Amen.